This is the Oasis Church Podcast. We're located in Athens, Ohio, and we use this podcast feed to primarily post the messages from our Sunday morning church gatherings. If you enjoy this message or if you'd like to know more about Oasis Church, please reach out to us at oasisathens at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We look forward to hearing from you, and we hope that you enjoy this message from Oasis Church in Athens, Ohio. Let's read Luke 4. Excuse me. I thought my intention as I went into this, this week, this study, is that I would preach Luke 4, verses 14 through 30. But... As it goes, uh, it would take a lot longer time, and I already go for a long time, I know that. And so, as it goes, uh, we are going to stop at verse 22. So it's going to feel like it's right in the middle of this, uh, of this section, but there's a reason we're stopping in that verse. So let's just read it together here first, and then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll pray and we'll jump into uh, what... Uh, what it means, what, what, what's happening here. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on a Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the the year of the Lord's favor." And he rolled, the, he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious works that were coming from his mouth. The gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? Let's pray. God, you know, as well as I do, that um, you know better than I do, that we have a lot here um, that's happening. And I pray that you would help me, Lord, to draw out all of the, all of the, the points and the nuance and the little things that are taking place in this event of Christ's life in the beginning of his ministry um, without taking away from what it is you want us to hear today. And so just help me to forget anything that is that is not in your plan, Holy Spirit, to say, but help me to remember and recall everything exactly the way you would like for it to be spoken today. And I pray for all of those who hear, who have ears to hear. I pray that their hearts would be open and their eyes would see today, that blind eyes would perhaps be open if there are any blind eyes in the room today or online with us today listening to your word. Jesus would do that very work that he said is being fulfilled in him at this very moment. At this very moment, this word is being fulfilled in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, as I've said, we get to look at the the beginning, how Jesus' earthly ministry began. And like so many ministries, his began really simple, really humble, very, very humble. His, His church began, well... A lot like this one did. We had extremely humble circumstances and really kind of kept those really uh, extremely simple. Uh, and you know, we, we just, we, we, when we started meeting, we, it, oh, I, I, I don't even want to begin the story because it's, it would take me three hours to tell the whole story. But just in, you know, in homes here and there and in a yard and in a street and in a, just different places we could find and everything. And, and really, it was just very simple. Read the scripture, sing some songs, talk about the scripture, go home, pray for each other and go. And, and, it's, and it's remained that way. Well, Jesus, you know, as I look back on the, on the, 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 the ministry of, of this church, of Oasis Church, and don't mistake, when I say as I look back over the ministry of this church, don't mistake that for legacy. It's not the, the legacy of the local church is not, it's never been our goal. I don't think that should be any church's goal to, to leave a legacy. I think it should be the church's goal to do ministry, to do the ministry of Christ. 
And the ministry of the church, I believe God has been exceedingly gracious to us, regardless of what we've looked like or where we've met. I've been very, very grateful for what he's done. And I've been very mindful this week as I've read this this account and studied through this account of of just how Jesus's ministry, like most ministries, start really simple and really humble. I mean, that's exactly what happened here. It is really simple what's taking place. Jesus began his ministry just simply preaching, reading the scriptures, and then talking about preaching the scriptures, talking about the scriptures. And and he did this as a spirit-filled Spirit-led Bible teacher. That's what the Old Testament scriptures were that he read from in Isaiah. They're the Bible. Jesus was a Bible preacher. And what we find in this text also is that as he began his ministry, it was not in the big, large city of Jerusalem. Jesus didn't choose to go to Jerusalem to start his ministry, but he actually started it in the small towns, in the region of Galilee. As he would travel through Galilee, he didn't begin his public work with the large crowds and the arenas and the stadiums, but in in the big synagogues in Jerusalem and the big cities, but he actually began it throughout this rural area that we know that he called home, his hometown, his home location of Nazareth. The Galilean region is really interesting because it's a region that's much like, you know, some of these small rural counties in Ohio. Some some of the towns have dozens of people and that's it. Some of the towns may have a hundred or so people, like the one that Jesus grew up in, which was Nazareth, had about a hundred or so people. Nazareth itself would have been a very small town, which was the place that Jesus stopped to speak in the little synagogue. It's actually amazing they had a synagogue in Nazareth at that time. It's not small today. If you were to look up Nazareth today, it's actually grown to over a hundred couple hundred thousand people, I believe. But back then it was extremely small. It was a very, very small town. And when Jesus starts his public ministry, his earthly ministry, he begins his ministry among those little small town, rural, simple folk. That's encouraging, isn't it? I think it is. I think it is as a small town, rural, simple folk. So this is how Luke, so what we're going to do is there's so much here. I mean, there is so much happening. And this is the reason why I stopped at verse 22, because literally every single, not just every verse, but because some of the verses are too long. Every phrase has some kind of point that is really significant and and interesting to, 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 to pull out, to draw out. So I just want to walk right down through all of these verses that we just read, just one by one. And this is, so this is Luke. Remember, this is how Luke records you know, the events of Jesus after going around and speaking to the eyewitnesses who actually heard Jesus preach and teach. And so he gathered all this information and he writes it down. And and in verses 14 and 15, he says, and Jesus returned in power of the spirit to Galilee and the report about him, a report about Jesus went out through the surrounding country and he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. So he kind of did this tour, right? This is the beginning of Jesus's ministry. And we don't know if it was weeks or months, but what we do know is that Jesus began his preaching and teaching ministry as, first of all, a spirit-filled preacher. And this is really important. This is important to, to us as a church. The greatest desire and priority that we have as a church is to preach the Bible about Jesus. Period. From day one until now, this has been the number one goal, to be a Bible-preaching, Bible-teaching church. And nothing else should get in the way of that. And and so it is absolutely central and essential and foundational for all that we believe and all the ways that we behave to to, to just to know that you're that you're surrounded by people who love the scriptures and who just want to teach the scriptures and talk about the scriptures. And this is really encouraging for me because Jesus, you know, look at Jesus's ministry. Yes, he did heal. Yes, he did feed. Yes, he did counsel people one-on-one. But everything that he does, everything, his whole ministry begins with the preaching of God's word, with just standing up in front of people in a simple place and opening up his word and reading it and then preaching his word. Jesus's ministry was sustained by the preaching and teaching of the Bible, of the scriptures. And so I will say it again, like I say it almost every week. It is my deep, profound, sincere hope that the scriptures would matter to you, that they would matter. 
that hearing the word of God would be something that would matter to you because the Bible tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So the more the word of God is poured into your heart, the more it's poured into your mind through your own reading, through your own Bible studies with people, through listening of preaching and, and, and getting as much as you possibly can, the more it's going to come out of you in those moments when you least expect it, those unexpected moments. And that's what it's like to abide in him. I was talking with some friends this week about how uh, it's interesting that when, when this is your goal, when the scriptures is something that you do love and that you just want to pour into your heart and mind, that you don't have to necessarily, it, it always kind of has been, there's always been this, ten, this awkward tension, I think, for Christians to, we hear we're supposed to tell people about Christ, right? You're supposed to tell people about Christ. And we, we sometimes feel like we have to force and interject Bible verses in the conversation or force or interject your faith in the conversations. And I don't really think that's how, I don't think it's how it needs to work if the scriptures are just hidden in your heart. I think in the most unexpected moments, you'll find, I, I mean, one example for me is this. I have a podcast that you, many of you guys may even listen, have listened to once or twice. And, I, and it's with a buddy of mine. He and I, uh, Pat, he might even be watching right now. How you doing, Pat? Uh, he and I get on the podcast together, and it's simply, it's basically to encourage people who have young kids, you know, and, and older kids as they grow up through sports. And we talk about youth sports and high school sports, college sports, pro sports, and we talk about the aspects of coaching them, being a parent of kids who play them, being, you know, being a... Uh, uh, being, being a player, being one of the people that plays them. We try to get people on, things like that. And really, it's not a Christian-based podcast, but ultimately, it seems like every one or two, you know, two, you know, two or three episodes or so, we'll find ourselves talking about the Lord. We'll find ourselves talking, you know, whatever we're talking about, a scripture comes to mind, that we, and whether we quote it exactly or not, like quote the, the chapter and verse in the book and all that, we know, we're looking at each other through the screen now, since March, just through the, the Zoom screen, looking at each other going, I know where you're going here, I know where you're going, because he's a Christian, I'm a Christian, and, 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 and the word is hidden in both of our hearts, and it just comes out naturally. You don't have to interject it. You don't have to force it in the conversation. It's a really, it's a really cool thing. It's a real, I'll tell you another story really quick, and I'll, keep, I'll try to keep this short. In my interview for Scripps College of Communication, uh, when I was sitting down in the large dean's office conference room in 2015 for the, for the, to get this job as the operations manager, six other people in the room, including the dean, I had no idea. I only knew one of them. And... It did, not, like, it did not occur to me in my preparation to want to quote scripture when I was in there, like in, in this particular interview, right, at Ohio University and interviewed to get a job at this college. One of the questions that was asked of me was, you know, it was to the effect of, hey, there's a lot of diversity here. We have five different schools, people from all different religions and regions of the world and all different faiths and backgrounds and worldviews and things like that. And so the role that you're going to have is going to be, you're going to be, you're going to be touching base and, and interacting with every single one of the, literally every person in our college. And, and there might, you're going to have, basically one of your roles is going to be conflict resolution. How will you be able to handle that based upon, you know, I'm sure you have a certain set of beliefs as well. How will you be able to handle that? And, I, and it, wasn't, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a Bible question, but it was, a, it was more of, a, I think, a political type question or, a, or you know, a personal worldview question. But the first thing that came to my mind, the first thing that came to my mind, and I took a deep breath because I thought, should I say this? This could either make or break in this interview, was Paul in Acts chapter 17 when he's in Athens, Greece, ironically enough. And he's standing in Solomon's colonnade on Mars Hill, and, 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 and he's, he's, he's seeing, he's just watching and listening, to, and, he, and he's looking at all of the, the, the sculpted gods that they, you know, they have statues for, and he's just looking at all of them, God for this, God for that, God for this, and God for that. And he happens to notice that there is a, 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 a sculpture or a, a place, a statue or a plaque for an unknown god. And, he, and he, he, he takes that, and, he, and I'm sure he, the Holy Spirit gave him a thought to say, hey, you know what? I see that you people are really religious. I see you have incredible spirituality. You, 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 want, to, you want to please the gods. But I also see that you have a plaque here for an unknown God. Let me tell you about him, because that's the one that I know. And he starts right there, with right where they are. And he doesn't point fingers at them and tell them that they're all wrong. He just says, hey... Let me tell you about this one. 
And I told that story there, and I thought to myself, okay, well, I need to keep looking for another job because this isn't going to work out. But, but reality, the truth is, when you're, t- you know, when you're telling, st- when you're talking like that in an interview, and you see, I, I immediately could see that's a Christian, and that's a Christian. I could see them in the room because I, I, they, they knew where I was going with it, and I could see them nodding their heads. And I'm like, oh, thank you, Lord. And it worked out, right? It worked out. But here's the thing. I didn't plan that. I didn't plan it. You don't have to plan it. When you're, abide, when you're by abiding in him, I think he comes out in conversation on a regular basis. You know what? And it doesn't seem forced. And because trust me, the person that you're forcing it on will notice. In the year 2021, they notice, don't they? Yeah. All right. Where was I? I mean, this is why the centrality of Scripture is so important, right? This is why we read. You know, so as we read, we know that Jesus is a spirit-filled preacher. God becomes a man filled with the Holy Spirit, and he, he has this itinerant, this traveling ministry. So that's what it's going to be. Jesus' ministry is a traveling, preaching ministry throughout the region of Galilee. All right? So he's preaching in these small towns, and, and it says that he's preaching where? In synagogues. So these are places where God's people would gather, right? So it's like... You know, they would come together for scripture reading and prayer and perhaps some singing. And if there was someone there who was qualified uh, and, and they, were, they were actually in their presence that could preach a sermon, they would preach. They would have a moment of teaching there. And in these small towns, these synagogues were not generally very large at all, but they were just built like a, like a house to, to hold about a dozen people or so in these really small rural towns. So when you're looking at small towns of dozens of people or hundreds of people, to even form a synagogue in those towns, is, it required at least 10 adult men of the faith. And some of those towns would have a hard time even qualifying to have a synagogue in it. They were that small and there were that few of, of God's people in those towns. But for those towns that did have a synagogue, you might think of it kind of like our various local churches today in, you know, in, in any given locale, like churches today. The church today meets in various locations. God's people gather together for scripture reading and prayer and perhaps some singing and some Bible teaching. And all of that stuff that we do here in our churches is based off of that synagogue system. It just Christianity just kind of continued on as God's people doing some of the very similar same things that was happening in these synagogue settings. So, you know, having the church just kind of follow in many ways the same sort of pattern of the synagogue system. And so it was at this point... Uh, that Je- and so at this point that Jesus is coming here to Nazareth, he's already been to some of these small synagogues throughout the region of Galilee, and he's actually gaining popularity. People are actually, there's crowds that are gathering. And much like the Old Testament prophets, when the Old Testament, you know, I mean, there hasn't been, remember, there hasn't been a prophet rise up for 400 years. They've been waiting, right? And then they had this birth, and you got John the Baptist, and then Jesus is amazing the way he talks. And so it's like, maybe this is it, right? And so he begins with this real initial period of enthusiasm, like most of the Old Testament prophets, they eventually get murdered. Uh, Well, right? Crowds come out. He comes to town. The synagogue is full. They probably packed people in that little synagogue there in Nazareth. There might, you know, there might only be a dozen or so people in the town, but I'm guaranteeing you every single person came out to listen to what he had to say. They're not used to having great preachers come there. I mean, great Bible teachers come to their synagogue. They're not used to having people of notoriety and fame and significance in their service. And here comes this hot new Bible preacher, this guy named Jesus. And, it's, and as it so happens, he's actually from their town. He's one of them, right? That, and so he, he's, he, he comes in and there's this great buzz about his preaching. There's something, there's something different about him. And one of the things that we learn in verse 16, moving on, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read, it says. He stood up to read. So he comes to his hometown here. And we'll read later, You'll re- I, actually we won't today, but if you read on down through this passage, uh, actually at the verse we're leaving off on, I think, you'll see that it says that a prophet is without honor. He's hard to accept in his own hometown. Jesus says that he ultimately will be rejected there in Nazareth. Let's stuff come off. We got to start it again. The internet died. Yep. Yeah. Let's try that again. So if it happens again, just walk through that okay. the best you can and see. It took a little while to connect today, so there might be some some weirdness to it. Cool. 
The good news is for those that are online, if they miss it, we also record it through the sound system. So we'll be able to get it out to the podcast. Um, so these people who saw Jesus as a little boy, he grew up there. He was a young, he, you know, he grew up as a, in Nazareth. They, they knew his father, the carpenter, and they knew Mary, just real humble people, real, you know, real kind of poor people, actually. And now this Jesus is a rabbi. He's a rabbi. And this was a high honor. And it was, it was really unusual for a man of Jesus's background in this small little town to be that educated, to be that wise, to be able to speak the way that he spoke. He's in a town where education would have actually been very difficult. It would have been very difficult for him to get his hands on the scriptures, actually, on the scrolls. I'll talk about that in a minute. But he is very well educated. He is very well learned. And we read, remember, we read previously in Luke chapter 2 that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with men and God. And that means he studied. Jesus studied. Remember, he's fully human. While at the same time being God, he studied, he grew, he learned. God humbled himself to identify with us, and he learned just as we have to learn, just as we have to apply ourselves. He devoted himself to the study of the scriptures, just as we have to devote ourselves to the study of scriptures. And what you find is that he actually becomes officially recognized as a rabbi, as a Bible teacher. And this means he's educated. They, they recognize him as literate, educated, very learned as a man. He's a theologian now. He's a thinker. He's a student. And if you want to be like Jesus, then you need to learn how to study and grow in wisdom and stature and love and knowledge. And Jesus comes to Nazareth. Here he is in his rural hometown. His parents, Mary and Joseph, are typical of anyone else that lives in Nazareth. Remember, his dad was a carpenter. Mom was very young when she had him. They were, they were very poor, simple folk. So they saw, you know, they, these people saw Jesus grow up, right? And important people didn't grow up in Nazareth. Important people didn't come to Nazareth. Like, I mean, like it wasn't a stop, right? We live in, we live in small towns here, so we know what it's like. Like, you know, when somebody in our towns becomes an important person, right? They become significant in the world, famous. It's big news. It's, it's huge news for us if that ever happens. Because it's so rare. It just doesn't happen very often. Sometimes it doesn't happen at all. You can go a lifetime and never have it happen. And so... That's the reason why you see later when people describe, they're talking about the fame of Jesus, you hear some people say, as, as word spreads about him throughout the region, some people say, can anything good come from Nazareth? Meaning no one from substance or notoriety or any kind of significance ever has come from the town of Nazareth. Are you sure this is, this is the same guy? And so Jesus is coming home, right? He's their one and only He's, you know, son, he's their own. He's the one, he's, they've seen him since he's grown up. And he's officially a learned man. He's a rabbi now. He's been preaching and teaching in the region. People are following him and they're, they're, they want to be in there. They want to hear him. And, and here it is. They're captivated by him. So Jesus shows up. And I love what it says. He shows up in the synagogue as was his custom on the Sabbath day. So for the Jews, this was on Saturday. And it was based on the Ten Commandments and God's order of creation in Genesis. And and so they would meet on Saturday in the synagogue there. Now, as Christians, after the resurrection of Jesus, Christians started worshiping on Sunday because that was the day of the resurrection of Jesus. And it inaugurated, you know, it sort of inaugurates the new era, the new covenant era, and the new reality of life after the resurrection of Jesus. And so when people... And the gospel, this is really kind of interesting, when people, when, when the gospel comes to the United States of America and people came to the United States of America, they didn't know whether or not to, to, to celebrate the Jewish or the Christian Sabbath. And so we got a two-day weekend out of the deal. And, and that's, that's really how it happened. We have both, really. That's why many of you don't work on Saturday or Sunday, because they couldn't figure that out. And, and that's what it's based on. So he, as was his custom, what do you do? He went to the synagogue. He went to the synagogue. So I'm, I'm, you know, think of Jesus as going essentially to the equivalent of what would be like an old covenant church. So we, 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 we can equate this with our going to church, right? Going to a church meeting. And this was then the old covenant that was the synagogue. Jesus is going to church as was his custom. So he regularly attended corporate worship. He just regularly did. Jesus would have gone. He would have gone uh, to, to the Sabbath, being obedient to the scriptures to show up with God's people every Saturday service. I almost said Sunday service. Saturday service for him. Could you imagine how bad? I mean, think about this. Where did he, he grew up in Nazareth, right? How bad 
Jesus' synagogue might have been growing up? Let's be honest, all right? Let's just think about this. It's a rural town, small little synagogue, not a lot of literate people there. No rabbi of note would have been at that synagogue because all the good ones, get, they send them to Jerusalem, to the bigger, better ones. They get, they get the bigger gigs in the bigger towns. So here it is, Saturday morning, time to get up, get dressed, go to worship with God's people. Do you think Jesus ever heard a bad sermon? He probably always heard a bad sermon, really, in that synagogue. Because if you're a good preacher, like I said, they'd move you out of Nazareth. They wouldn't, you wouldn't have stayed there. You would have gone to one of the bigger deals. Do you think Jesus ever sat there in the synagogue and maybe heard someone try to read, you know, mumble and stumble through the scriptures? Probably did. Do you think there were ever like those really eccentric people who show up to the synagogue? <laughs> those annoying people, frustrating people, negative people? Sure, sure. You think there were people that were kind of irregular in their attendance at the worship of the synagogue? Yeah, there probably were. And you know what? Here's the cool thing. Jesus went. He just went. He didn't complain. He didn't despise where he was. Where he, he didn't check out. He didn't criticize the church. He didn't write a Facebook post talking about all the reasons why the synagogue was failing, the, grieving the heart of God. Right? He, Jesus just went to be with God's people, and he knew these people are not perfect. And so this place is not going to be perfect. He just knew that that was where he would go to hear the word of God. He was humble. He was humble enough to sit in what we would today call the small rinky-dink rural church, probably with some part-time pastor, no flash, no notoriety. That was Jesus. And it was because his heart for the Father and his mind was full of the Spirit, the Scriptures, and Jesus became this amazing rabbi and this amazing teacher and preacher coming out of that little small rinky-dink Nazareth church. Cool. Back to verse 16. So what's he do? He stood up to read. Now this was, a, this was like a high honor. My guess was that in the synagogue, because you see this, we're in this very passage of scripture, you see he stands up to read the scriptures, but then he sits down to teach them. And that's often what, what happened in that day. It was like a, a custom. And my guess is that as he's there, because the buzz that you, that you feel when you're reading this section of scripture, my guess is that it's packed. That little one-room synagogue is probably packed with people. It's not just a visiting rabbi, a visiting preacher or pastor or teacher. It's their own. It's a hometown boy. It's the hometown son. It's Mary and Joseph's little boy. It's Jesus. They've heard about him. They know, they've seen him all their lives. And so these crowds come out, not just from Nazareth possibly, but, but these other small towns after they already heard him speak and teach. And so you can envision that, you know, Jesus is kind of like on a tour here. It's a walking tour of the homeless and the poor, you know, and all that, but it's a bit of a tour. That's kind of what it is. And the word gets out that Jesus is coming to Nazareth and his route takes him through all those little Galilean towns and he's coming home. And it's like this big event. It's like those bands that go on those road tours and they often be, either begin or end the tour in their hometown. And it's kind of like the biggest, best show there. And that's this. That's what it is. It's the big event. This is Jesus back at his hometown where all of his family and all of his friends and all the buddies that he grew up with, they're going to be there. The people that knew him and supported him and loved him. You know, that's where he's at. He's here and he's home. And you can assume that this synagogue was probably really full. If he's drawn crowds in other towns that didn't know him until now, he's probably surely drawn a crowd and the curiosity in his own hometown. And so what it says is that he stood up to read. And, and as I said, their services were a little bit different than ours. You would stand up for the reading of the scripture, the, the person who's doing it, but then that he would sit down for the teaching. And I've often sat down and taught, and I, and I kind of enjoy that, actually. It's a little more relaxing. And that's exactly what's going to happen here. Jesus stands up to read the scripture. Here's what it reads. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll. And he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so Jesus stands as authority, you know, in the authority that's given to him as the Bible preacher, the Bible teacher, and the scroll of Isaiah is handed to him. And this would be, you know, until now, you know, so... Until Johannes Gutenberg, is that who invented the printing press? Until that happened, there wasn't copies of scripture. There weren't copies of books written, you know, copied down, mass produced. They were all handwritten, 
on parchment, on scrolls, and rolled up documents. And so you can imagine that if you have the entire, like, like the book of Isaiah in one scroll, it wouldn't be easy to find it. Like he's unrolling it, right? And I think, I think what this indicates, like, like I said, all of this says something. Everything that, that you read here in Luke, it's telling, what does this tell us? I think it tells us that Jesus knew the Bible pretty well because he knew exactly where he was going. The chapters and verses weren't added to, our, added to our Bibles until about the 1200s, or the chapters weren't. I think the verses were like the 1500s. And those are just like addresses for us, right? It's like you have an address. Like I can tell you a, chapter, a book, chapter, and verse, and you can look it up just like driving around and knowing where the address is. That's kind of what we find our way in the Bible like that, and that's, how, that's, that's our destination. So to find the place that he wants to read and teach from, Jesus has to unroll the scroll, and he's looking, and he's looking. And what he's going to read here is a little bit from Isaiah 58 and a little bit of Isaiah 61. And so it's, it's to the, toward the, the end of the 66 chapter book of Isaiah that he's rolling out, meaning that he knows exactly where he's going to go because he's studied those scriptures. He knows he's probably looked at that very scroll before and read from that very thing many, many times. Here's a thought-provoking question. Can you imagine what kind of devotion that you would have to have if your local town only had one or two copies of the Bible, so the scriptures, the Old Testament, and they were at the synagogue in these really long scrolls that you had to roll out. I wonder how many of us would read the scriptures. Like, how many of us would actually do the work of like going out, walking to the synagogue, checking out one of the copies and unrolling it, no chapter, no verses, no study Bibles, no online resources, no apps, no commentaries, no audio Bibles, nothing like we have now, just that. And then you gotta take it back and you can't read it anymore. Somebody else is gonna go get it. It's interesting to think about, I think. So Jesus opens the scroll of Isaiah. And I think we can infer as he often probably did, and he reads it. And here's what we see. He's pulling a little bit from Isaiah 58 and 61. And the context in this, in this section of Isaiah is actually from chapter 40 through chapter 66 to the end of the book. And, the, and that's the, the context that he's pulling from here is this big idea of the suffering servant. That God the Father would send God the Son into human history as a servant. The servant who suffers. The one who would be betrayed and put to death and suffer and die and then rise in our place as, you know, for our sins as our Savior. And so the second half of Isaiah 52 and in Isaiah 53, in that section, that, that big section, the last half of Isaiah, is this great ultimate summary of Jesus' life and ministry. What would be Jesus' life and ministry? In all the Old Testament, many people have called the book of Isaiah the fifth gospel because Isaiah was so clear about what Jesus would do some 700 years in advance. I mean, teaching and preaching and prophesying about the coming of the Lord Jesus as the suffering servant hundreds of years before he did. And it's so clear. It's so clear. And I think that's why Jesus chose this book first to read when he began his ministry. So moving a little bit further into chapters 58 and to 61, the context, the specific context in those chapters is this, is this thing called the year of Jubilee. Now, the year of Jubilee was this pattern, this, this regular pattern every so often that God had put into history among God's people when, the, when things like the slaves would be set free, uh, debts would be canceled, land that had been lost through debt or tragedy would be given back to people. So it was a year that, that everyone would get sort of a fresh start. That'd be pretty amazing, actually. <laughs> right? And you actually hear, you know, and here's the wild thing. You actually hear people wanting things like that today. But I, we, we, you just couldn't do it today. I mean, we, we can't fathom the difference. People today are so wicked and abusive and evil that even if you set up a year, like a year of Jubilee today, you know that people, people would do. They'd rack up all kinds of debt. They would abuse their finances. And they would set themselves up in some horrendous way to abuse this grace that they knew was going to come. 
And, and that, that was not the intent. That, that was absolutely not the intent. The intent wasn't that grace would be abused, but that people who had truly suffered and were poor and struggling and were incarcerated and were enslaved, they would, just, they would have the opportunity to get a clean, fresh start. And that's, and that's God's grace. God's grace would be given to them. They would recognize it as the grace of God. They would be given, the, you know, they basically had the opportunity to start a new life, to start over. It was a wonderful grace of God. And it was just one of the ways in the Old Testament of the, you know, to foreshadow what ultimate grace would be given through Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection for our freedom. And so the context here is around the year of Jubilee. And these ideas that Jesus is going to share are about God giving us all in him a bit of Jubilee. And so he starts by saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. So the first thing we see is Jesus here. The first thing he, he speaks about or he reads from Isaiah is he speaks of the poor. And Luke highlights Jesus' ministry all throughout to his ministry to the poor. Jesus himself was poor. Jesus' mother and father were poor. His family and friends, his hometown were poor. And what he is beginning with here is, is this point of saying that, hey, you know what? In this world, if you're poor, you're at a distinct disadvantage, and God recognizes that. I mean, you know as well as I do that if you're poor, there's just not the same access to the same kind of medical care or doctors that the rich have access to. You know that. You, the NFL guys have a lot better access to get a quick surgery than some poor person here in low, low, lowly town. It's just, a, it's just a fact. If you're poor, there's not access to the same kind of educational opportunities as, as people who have money. If you're poor, there's not the same number of resources to better your life, to change and to build a new legacy. And so what Jesus says is that he comes to preach to the poor, basically meaning he's offering the same exact grace and salvation and love of God and forgiveness of sins and opportunity of heaven for the poor as the rich get. And they would not have heard that before. They would have never heard a message like that before. And so I think what, that what we got to be careful of doing, in addition to talking about this, is don't infer here that Jesus is against rich. Because the scripture is not against rich. There are people who misunderstand this, I think, when it comes to money. And there are actually four kinds of people. There are two kinds of rich and two kinds of poor. There are righteous rich and unrighteous rich. And then there's righteous poor and unrighteous poor. So the righteous rich, what, or the unrighteous rich, let's start with them. What do they do? They steal, they, they cheat, they hoard, they embezzle, they don't give, they don't share. They're not generous people. That's, they're, it's just unrighteous. And then you have the righteous rich, which they work hard and smart. And by God's grace, they have a lot. They've made a lot of money and, they, and they're good stewards with it. And God continues to bless them because they're very generous. They give and they help the poor and they help those in need. And so you know, remember the, the book of Luke is funded by who? A rich man. The, on the very first day of our study, we talked about this man named Theophilus. And his name literally means lover of God, but he's also called most excellent Theophilus. Well, that means he's an affluent, wealthy man. That's a, that's a distinguished honor and title in that culture. And so Luke's research culminates in the writing of this book of the Bible that we're studying today. By the power of the Holy Spirit, it's actually funded by a righteous, rich man. So, and, and so just like the rich... It, the same principle comes to those who are poor. There are those who are poor and unrighteous poor. The Proverbs talk a lot about unrighteous poor. It speaks of those who are sluggards and lazy. It just they won't work. Uh, people who won't, they're, they drunkards who won't stop drinking. Fools who won't stop gambling. Uh, people who chase fantasies and get rich quick schemes and things like that. They come to ruin, the Proverbs says. That's unrighteous poor. But Jesus here in this in this section of scripture, and I believe in all of his preaching, is speaking of the fourth category. And it's those who are both righteous and poor. They're not poor because they've sinned or because they're lazy or they're foolish. These are just hardworking, honest people, simple folk who have just been in a circumstance where they have little. Like his dad, for example. His dad, Joseph, who was a carpenter, was a hardworking man, but it was an honest job, but it would have just paid very little, just enough to get by. And so the question is, for those who are righteous and poor, what does God have for them? And they would have wanted to know that. Well, here's what he has. Complete equality in the sight of God through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's what, he, that's what they have. That's what Jesus is telling them. Rich and poor attend church together. 
They attend synagogue together. They, they will attend church together forever. There's no preferential seating for the rich and punishment seating for the poor, which, by the way, there is that in some religions. Hinduism, for example, has that kind of a system, a caste system. Poor and rich sit together in Christ. Jesus' brother James talks about this, actually. He says something to the effect in the book of James that neither should there be the mistreatment or neglect of those who are poor. And what that means is that those who are righteous and rich need to, need to look after and give generously to the, to the ministry to be done to help those who are righteous and poor. And those who are righteous and rich even give of themselves to help of the poor. And so that's what happens is Jesus is saying, look, Christianity, followers of Christ, is not going to be based on an economic model where you get what you pay for. Christianity is built on grace where Jesus is your God and he gives grace thoroughly and completely and equally and fully to all. And that's what that year of Jubilee was foreshadowing. And so that's, that's number one. Number two, what's he say? He speaks to those who are captives, meaning they're prisoners of war. It's amazing in our day that this concept of captives isn't really believed by some people. Like, like we don't realize that it actually still, they're still captives. They're still slaves that are being held all around the world, to be sure. And, and we, we need to recognize that and, and pray for their liberation and justice because people belong to God. They don't belong to people. People belong to God. They don't belong to other people. Slave trading, as was practiced in America, is a horrendous sin. And, and when we say slavery in America, a lot of Americans would almost immediately say, oh, yeah, that was a horrendous season in our nation's history. We're so glad that there's no longer slavery. But the truth is, in the broader scheme, there is still slavery. I'll give you one example. The sex industry is slavery. Prostitution is slavery. That's not often dealt with like that in people today. Because a lot of people today would say, well, you know what, they, they do, they're prostitutes, they do nasty things, you know, they're doing, they're doing what they want to do, right? It's, it's, they're both consenting adults, they're in that because they want. But look, that's a demonic lie. I don't care why they're in what they're in. When you get there, it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's slavery is what it is. I mean, pornography, which is everywhere in our culture, I mean, it, is, it seems like it's just it's acceptable. It's just part of, it's part of everyday culture. It's free, right? But we need to know that it's not free. It's not free. It is slavery. It is contributing to modern day slavery. That's what it is. And Jesus says that he has come to do what in this section? Proclaim liberty to the captives. He wants to set captives free. He wants them to be released. He wants to set slaves free. He wants to particularly take the, the battered and abused and the neglected people and, and help them to see justice. And, and, and let me just say this as well, because you know, when you speak of slavery, we tend to only think of one form, but there's another form of slavery that is self, self-selected. You know, we often are self-selecting slaves. For some people, it's drugs. You know, drugs is the slave master. Alcohol can be a slave master. Other people's opinion can be a slave master for you. For some people, it's food, some it's gambling, some it's entertainment, some it's foolishness, some it's just high-risk behavior or compulsive spending. Those are all slave masters that we choose for ourselves, and we fall under that, and you end up in slavery to it, and it rules over us, and it controls our lives. And what people need when they are in self-selected slavery is not just behavior modification and more self-esteem so they don't do those things anymore. They need salvation and the Spirit's power. To overcome it. And some people still fight through this own self-afflicting captivity. But because of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, he says, captives can be set free. It's a beautiful thing. He goes on, number three. There's actually four of them, so I'm going to get to all four of them real quick. And he talks about those who are blind. Recovering sight to the blind. Recovering of sight to the blind. Jesus actually did bring sight to people who were blind. Can you imagine that? I mean, just being fully blind and Jesus, meet Jesus one day you see. And that's what he did. John the Baptist, some years later, even John the Baptist, right, questioned and doubted and wondered, is he really, is he really the Messiah? Is he really the one? And he started questioning, is, he, is Jesus really the Christ? So some of John's followers came to Jesus and says, hey, John wants to know, are you the one? And listen to the answer that Jesus gave to them to tell back, go back and tell John, the blind are now seeing. It's a fulfillment of a prophecy that one that John would have very well known and read from the scroll of Isaiah, 
that they would know that God had come when blind eyes were open. And so it was, would have been an easy thing for John to say, oh, yep, yep, that's him. And so Jesus opens the eyes of the blind, and he does this spiritually as well. We know that Jesus heals, right? We need to know this for ourselves. We believe that. When James says to pray for the sick, pray for the sick and believe that God can and does heal. Just do it. Just pray for the sick. He heals physically. He heals spiritually. We, do we see it all the time? No, we don't. Have we seen it sometimes? Sure. Probably all of you may have a story of someone that you know. If not, pray. Pray for those and see. God does. We do see. Some, you, you sometimes do see unexplainable physical healing. Ask doctors. Many doctors have unexplainable stories. They're like, I don't know what happened there, but that person had cancer, and now they don't. And I told them they were, this person, I told this person they could never have a baby. It was impossible. They're, I took everything out, and they still had a baby. Right? We, we have personal friends that adopted. For years, they tried everything. Doctor told them that, and then, boom, four more later of their own. <laughs> Five kids. Right? So we pray for those things. We're not healers. Don't mistake that. We're prayers. God's the healer. Right? But Jesus does this spiritually as well when we talk about opening the eyes of the blind. People who are blind to the things of God, who don't see the goodness of God in Christ, God opens their eyes. How many of you have had that experience? For much of your life, maybe you didn't understand who Jesus was. Maybe you didn't care to understand who Jesus was. You didn't know that he was God become man. You didn't know that he lived a life that you couldn't live to die a death that you, could, that you should have died to give you the life that you can't earn in any way possible on this earth. You just couldn't see it. You couldn't see it. It had nothing to do with how intellectual you were, how smart you were, or how dumb. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with blindness and sight. You just, you're just blind to it. You may have heard about Jesus or knew something about Jesus, or maybe your parents took you to church at one point, but you just, it just wasn't important to you because you couldn't see it. And your eyes weren't fixed on him. Like in Hebrews says, that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. You were blind to him, and maybe, this, maybe it was self-selected blindness. The Bible was taught, and God was, pre God was present. And you had good parents that taught you, but you just didn't, you chose blindness. And then all of a sudden, God opens, Jesus opens blind eyes to understand, and the scripture starts to come to life to you. And God shows you the life that he wants you to have. And then finally, he says, set the, he, he goes on to say, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And the, and the oppression here are those who are abused. You know, in our day, this would be, this is the girlfriend whose boyfriend, every time she gets out of line, he puts her in line. This is, this is the, the, the mom who's got a bunch of little kids and she's trying her best to take care of them. But the dad's an angry, dare, you know, terrifying, dangerous guy that lives, she's constantly living under the threat that he's, you know, uh, he's going to abuse her all the time. That's, that's oppression. That's the kind of thing that Jesus, people are abused mentally, spiritually, emotionally. Jesus said that's why he's come to set free, to give liberty to those who are abused. And then Jesus does this. What he's doing is, this is the beginning of his public ministry. And what he's doing is he's talking about the dawning of his kingdom. He is a king who does what? That's what he's, what his first sermon, he says, I am, a, I am here and I'm a king and I do what? Take care of the poor and the captives and the blind and the oppressed he did it then in his ministry, and he still does it today through his church. And one day he will ultimately do it at the end of time when the kingdom of God is fully unveiled and Jesus comes back in all of his glory. You know, what he's gonna, you know what's going to happen then? The poor are going to be blessed. The captives are going to be set free. Blind are going to see. And the oppressed are going to weep no more. But until then, until that perfect day when it happens in perfection in his kingdom, we just as the church do the best that we can to carry out that exact same ministry in the church and in our daily lives as Christians. That's what Jesus began in his public ministry was, I think, a template for the church, for us. And so we're just going to close with this verse here. As I said, we'd stop verses 20. Verse 22, we'll actually stop at verse 21. Verse 21 says, He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of all those in the synagogue were on him, and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's an amazing thing. 
So Jesus then sits down to preach. Like, he read the scripture, and then he sits down to preach. And people either sat at his feet, or he was elevated up on a stage, or there are various ways that could have happened historically in that day. And all of this is read here. So right, as Jesus is reading, and this would have been a scripture that many of them probably would have recognized. Oh yeah, we, we've, we, Isaiah prophesied this. And they probably are wondering, there are people there who are poor. And they're probably wondering, how will our lives be changed? And there are people who are captives, perhaps, and they're wondering, how will we be set free? And there are people who are blind, and they're like, how will we ever see? And there are people who are oppressed, and they're thinking, how will we be vindicated? And then Jesus rolls up the scroll. He's done reading, and he hands it to the attendant. And with this dramatic look out over the crowd, I'm just assuming that's not in the scripture, but I'm guessing he just kind of looks at him. He says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture. That's it. A prophet had not spoken in over 400 years. Rabbis at that time were probably debating, hey, I wonder, has God abandoned us? I mean, are we, has the Holy Spirit left us? You know, God, you know, God, has God no longer pleased with us? Are we no longer his people? I, where's the Holy Spirit? No prophet had come to preach in, over, you know, in hundreds of years. No books of scripture have been written. We don't have anything else to study past Malachi. No scripture is, you know, no spirit-filled man has come to, onto the scene. No servant of God has shown up. We thought maybe John the Baptist and this guy. But, you know, but, and, you know for 400 years, they've, they've been debating about whether or not they truly were under God's you know, God's benevolent reign and, and whether or not they're actually going to ever be out of this and into freedom. And Jesus says today in this little room, in this little town with these simple people, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. I'm the Christ, which means he's the anointed one. He's the anointed one. And he said, all of this is fulfilled in me. I'm your riches. I'm your freedom. I'm your sight. I'm your liberation. That's me. Jesus says, it's all about me. And it is. It's all about Jesus. Let's pray. Well, God, I pray um, that the Holy Spirit would just stir and awaken in us to know the significance of this word that we've heard today. That we would want to know more. That we'd want to become more. That we'd want to do more. And Holy Spirit, as we get ready right now to participate in communion, as we one by one just get up from our seats when the moment is right, after everyone has, has, has dealt with this word in their own hearts and are ready to come and commune with you, we just confess our sin and our unbelief and our laziness toward you, and toward your word and toward your ministry, toward people. Lord God, I pray that from this day forward, we would just become a, a more passionate people, a more loving people, a more merciful people, a more generous people. And God, I pray that today, I pray that today, this day would be a great day for everyone here. I pray that today we would love Jesus. That today, those who have been suffering, but growing through that suffering, would be encouraged to just keep going, to continue on. That those maybe who have never met you, but they're here right now, listening, perhaps, participating online or here today. If they've never met you, they would, they would begin a whole new life in relationship with you today. The eyes would be opened. Holy Spirit, we can do nothing. You can do anything. And so we invite you to have your way with us and do in us and through us anything that you please to do. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.